This is an ABC podcast. When you hear the name Beatrix Potter, what springs to mind? Is it those beautiful illustrations of rabbits, mice and squirrels? Or is it mushrooms? Sounds a little strange, but before she wrote The Tale of Peter Rabbit, Beatrix Potter was a budding mycologist. That's someone who studies fungi, but I'll leave it to visual science communicator James Hudson to tell you more. He's speaking as part of Laboratory, held at ScienceWorks in Melbourne. Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. Sorry, wrong story. This story starts at a very specific upon a time, 35 years before that other story was even published. When, on the 28th of July, 1866, Helen Beatrix Potter was born to Rupert and Helen Potter of Two Bolton Gardens, West Brompton. Beatrix was born into a wealthy, artistic and scientifically literate family. And so this is a tale of all of those things. Enough wealth to be independent, when art becomes science, who said what science is, and as a side note, if a scientific paper falls behind the bookshelves of history, does anybody really care? Aside from their long summer holidays with family, Beatrix and her younger brother Bertram were very properly in the care of a governess. And so they spent most of their time upstairs on the third floor of their fashionable southwest London home, bored out of their skulls. Their boredom seems to have been alleviated by smuggling a vast menagerie into their nursery one animal at a time, without their parents noticing. This impromptu zoo included a frog, lizards, newts, a ring-tailed snake, minnows, a dormouse named Zarifa, house mice, birds, bats, snails, guinea pigs, a hedgehog named Mrs Tickywinkle, And over the years, a number of rabbits, including their perhaps familiar Benjamin and Peter. Beatrix played with and drew these animals obsessively. And when these darling pets died, she and her brother sometimes boiled off the skin and flesh to study and sketch their bones. (laughs) Yes, when Victorian kids science, they scienced without mercy. (laughs) And if you remember Beatrix Potter stories as being all cute and cuddly, you probably need to read them again. And especially note, despite the outfits and upright posture, how very and disturbingly anatomically correct they are. (laughs) While Beatrix Potter was perhaps more keen than most, all of Victorian England was abuzz with natural history. Darwin's origin of the species was still a topic of debate. Science magazines flourished. The Potters subscribed to Hardwick's Science Gossip, a respected illustrated journal for the exchange of information for students and lovers of nature. And apparently family debates over the identification and proper microscopic technique were commonplace in Victorian households. Now, I was going to take issue with just how likely that was, but then I remembered that I carried an iPhone microscope in my bag, and just the other day my daughter did suggest that my using a microscope in direct sunlight was likely to burn a hole in my retina. Anyway, if Victorian England had natural history fever, then its enthusiasm for watercolours had reached plague proportions. At the time of Beatrix's birth, just one model of watercolour kit had sold 11 million units in just 13 years, and there were only 20 million people in the whole of the UK at the time. But Beatrix's devotion to art went far deeper than the fashion of the day. It is all the same drawing, painting, modelling, the irresistible desire to copy any beautiful object which strikes the eye. Why cannot one be content to look at it? I cannot rest. I must draw, however poor the result. And draw she certainly did. Thousands of childhood pencil sketches, inks and delicate watercolours, capturing everything 
from microscopic scales of butterfly wings to bats, bird eggs, and water lily blossoms. By her early 20s, Beatrix's years of exacting observation and obsessive art practice became focused on fungi. She was first drawn to them as splashes of colour in an otherwise green and brown landscape. But they also afforded her the freedom to journey into the forests and fields in a pony cart with her wooden case of watercolours and without her family. And the hunt for and the finding of unexpectedly rare specimens brought her genuine pleasure. And in fact, it was on a break from such fungus hunting that Beatrix sat down in the sunshine on the lawn and wrote a picture letter to the sick child of her favourite former governess about a disobedient young rabbit called Peter. Victorian natural history had produced notable female amateur scientists and illustrators, amateur only in the sense that most women of the age were not sent to school or university. Yet by comparison to her contemporaries, women like Margaret Gatty, a marine biologist, Marianne North, a botanist, Eleanor Omerod, an entomologist, or even her cousin Mary Hutton, soon to be a geologist, Beatrix's efforts were not yet at the same level of commitment. Sensing the need to up her game, she sought out a credible critic. That critic was Charlie McIntosh, a postman she'd known since childhood, who, in that most Victorian of ways, also happened to be a very well-regarded Scottish mycologist. They struck up an unconventional scientific friendship, and he became her fungal mentor, and apologies to any Scottish people for this accent. Since you've begun to study the physiology of the funguses, you seem to see your drawings of them as defective in regard to the gills, but you can make them more perfect as botanical drawings by making separate sketches of the section showing the attachment of the gills, the stem, if it be hollow or otherwise, or any other details which show the characteristics of the plant more distinctly. And his advice would help professionalize her amateur enthusiasms across hundreds of fungal illustrations. Beatrix also became curious about spore germination. When Macintosh couldn't help, she tried the Natural History Museum a few blocks from the family home. But their limited collection of dried and pickled fungi was so badly labelled as to be almost useless. And at this point, it's perhaps worth emphasising this is why art is so integral to natural history at the time. When you collect a specimen by killing and stuffing or pickling in alcohol or squashing in a book, you completely bugger it up. <laughs> and it really helps to have some notion of what your odd, colourless, bloated animal corpse in a jar actually used to look like. Beatrix's uncle, a distinguished chemist, a fellow of the Royal Society and vice-chancellor of London University, sought to assist, and he provided an introduction to Britain's foremost botanical authorities at Kew Gardens. On first viewing, they liked her work enough to provide her with an open ticket of admission to visit the gardens whenever she liked. Despite her lack of training, she was undoubtedly one of the few Victorians engaged in experimental observations of fungi. It was 20 or so years before professional mycologists started describing the fungi at the same level of detail, and 40 years till they recognised the differences between closely related fungi that Beatrix observed. But her blunt self-confidence, which masked her anxieties, immediately put strain on the new relationship when she repeatedly argued with the head of Kew Gardens about her research. However, her tenacious spore germination work did win over George Massey, also of Kew Gardens, who agreed to present her work to the Linnaean Society of London, the premier society for the promotion of natural history, which at the time, and this will shock you, admitted only men to its meetings. The paper on the germination of the spores of a Gary Sinier dealt with a wild form of anaki mushrooms, which nowadays you've probably eaten at Japanese restaurants. Beatrix was the first in Britain to cultivate the fungus. In her experiments, she was observing and drawing germinating spores every hour or so, 
like hand-drawn, under the microscope, time-lapse photography, which kind of blows my mind. And based on these observations, he was suggesting that gilled fungi may be able to reproduce asexually, just like a mold. Massey told her that the paper was well-received, but it requires more work before it is printed. And to be fair, working out of her parents' kitchen may well have introduced uh, contaminants. But the fact that the head of Kew Gardens, who disapproved of Beatrix, presided over the meeting may have tainted things. In fact, the Linnaean Society recently apologised for their behaviour. And sadly, her paper remains lost. Some say her scientific endeavour ends here. After all, as an amateur and a woman, the deck was seriously stacked against her. However, she produced 70 more microscope drawings over the next two years, suggesting she was trying to resubmit the paper rather than shelving it. When and why she finally stopped her fungal work isn't known, but Beatrix had always wanted to find something useful to do with her talents and to gain the measure of economic and personal independence. Perhaps she decided scientific illustration and research, however intriguing, was not helping her reach those goals. And that looks like the end of the story, but it isn't. That illustrated letter about the rabbit became a little book, as she called it, and since its first publication in 1902, The Tale of Peter Rabbit, has sold more than 45 million copies and is the 42nd best-selling book of all time. Some 75 years before George Lucas, she made her work a legally protected brand, putting Peter and her other characters on toys, handkerchiefs, board games and every other kind of merchandising you can imagine. And today, that retail empire is worth $500 million. A recent estimate suggested that somewhere in the world, one of Beatrix's little books is purchased every 15 seconds. You may not see much science in them, but it's there in every page of her exacting illustrations. These whimsical little books communicated her love of natural history of Britain just at the very time that Britain was in danger of losing it for good. And it is perhaps not surprising that her work in later life with the National Trust and the donation of her property bought with her books and merchandising money laid the way for the creation of the Lake District National Park, the largest of its kind in the UK. In recent years, her fungal illustrations have been rediscovered, collated and included in a number of reference books, just as she had boldly predicted when writing to a young nephew. I have been drawing funguses very hard. I think that someday they will be put in a book, but it will be a very dull one to read. <laughs> dull book or not, her fungal illustrations are painstakingly accurate enough to remain professional scientific reference material over 120 years later. And they are also very beautiful. Visual science communicator James Hudson, paying tribute there to Beatrix Potter. And he was speaking at the Laboratory's Best of 2018 event at the Museum of the Moon, ScienceWorks, Melbourne. If you want to hear more about Beatrix Potter's early life as a pioneering mycologist, the science show did a fantastic program on it in 2015, reported by Sharon Carlton. I'll put a link to it in the program notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm the producer of Occam's Razor, James Bullen, and Robin Williams will be back next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.